0: Well, this morning, let's get into what, we're, what I'm paid to do, right? <laughs> this morning, we are actually ending our series um, in The Invisibles. Now, don't assume that we have mined the depth of them all, so we'll never come back to this. You know, the Bible's a huge book. We could do this for years. We won't. Uh, we will end the journey this morning, and next week, we will turn our attention and our focus to Christmas. The King is here, and we're going to explore that. Uh, in our sermon series uh, through, actually through the early chapters of Matthew. There's a surprise. But I want us to remember this morning as we end this series, the big why. Why did we even start this? There were three reasons, if you recall, because by human standards, we are God's invisibles. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 26, brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential not many of noble birth but God chose the foolish things huh, that's you and me of the world to shame the wise God chose the weak things that's us of the world to shame the strong when God saved us we weren't you know high and mighty powerful people he chooses the weak and the lowly and the despised and he made a choice And he's going to change the world through that choice. Second thing is the invisibles boast only in God. The text goes on in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 27. But God chose the foolish things to shame the wise. God chose the weak things to shame the strong. The lovely, the lowly things of this world and the despised things. And the things that are not to nullify the things that are. Why? So that no one may boast before him. We have nothing to boast about. Because who we are is because of the Savior. And third, we did this so that we can understand that we change the world when God uses ordinary people to do extraordinary things. The people at the church of Corinth were just mostly run-of-the-mill people. They were, they were idolaters, formerly. They were, they were common merchants, They were some freed slaves, converted slaves, Jewish believers, former temple prostitutes, middle-class families of every variety. This wasn't a power church, and yet God used them to change their world. And we have seen a lot of people who have changed the world through this series. We saw Zelophehad's daughters change the law. We, We saw Andrew, the disciple, Now we get to watch Andrew, the youth pastor, change the world. We saw Dorcas and Ehud and Ittai, the Gittite, and Silas and Barnabas. And this morning we tackle our last invisible, Melchizedek. The cookies are a little high today on the shelf. You're going to have to think and stretch a little bit. I'm sorry, but I'm not. that today. So let's dive into this. Who is this guy called Melchizedek? Three observations of the hardest to spell invisible we have encountered. Number one, only three books in the Bible mention him. Only three books that he shows up. He is found in Genesis. He is found in the book of Psalms. And he is found in the book of Hebrews. Only those three places The Old Testament, after it mentions him in in Genesis, is silent about him, clear till the book of Psalms, which he's alluded to in reference to the coming Messiah. Then he shows up again in the book of Hebrews. Observation one, only three books. Second observation, the New Testament says more about Melchizedek than the Old Testament. Well, that's rather interesting. His name only occurs once in Genesis, once in Psalms, and the rest, there are ten altogether, are in the book of Hebrews. 5, 6, and 7. The writers of Genesis and Psalms only give us four verses. Everything else is in the book of Hebrews. Third observation, he lived during Abraham's day. We meet him after one of the not so famous in stories in the life of Abraham. So, question number two you already know the answer to. It is this, where do we discover Melchizedek? Well, in three verses. So we're going to look at those passages. We know where to find him, two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. So let's explore what we can learn about him. He actually is a rather revolutionary character. Why? Because he reveals to us something of the glory of our Savior that hasn't been revealed before. He opens our eyes. So we're going to start this morning where? We're going to start in the middle, of course, that's the logical place to start. If you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 110. I'm going to read the entire Psalm. Psalm 110. It says, of David, a psalm. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. That's logical. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, so he will lift up his head you start with this question, who wrote Psalm 110? We're going to just not go through all the details, but we're going to take the text at its word. It says in the superscript, which is part of the text, of David. Okay, so we have a psalm of David. He is the author. So let's try to make some sense of this, what can be a confusing psalm. There are three characters in this psalm. There is David, who wrote the psalm. There is Lord, who the psalm. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, all caps. Do you see that in your Bible? I don't know what it's... Yeah, the Lord. Okay, well, got a good translation up there. Yahweh, God, in all caps, and then the third is the Lord, lower caps, capital L, and then lowercase letters. That is the coming Messiah, three characters, David, God himself, and the Messiah. So, let's read verse 1 again and see if it makes a little more sense. This is of David, a psalm. The Lord, Yahweh, God, says to my, David, Lord, Messiah. So God says to David's Messiah, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. Now, Jesus uses this in Matthew to say what? He, he's saying, you know, you've got to raise your expectations about Messiah because David calls him Lord. None of your grandchildren call you Lord. Maybe, maybe that will be my new title if I have grandchildren. <laughs> but it's just not the way it's done. You know, descendants, you know, the, the, the grandfather's greater and, and so, so on back. So how can Messiah be the son of David and be greater than David? That's Jesus' question. Gets them thinking. But here in Psalm 10, clearly you have a ruler who conquers his enemies, And then out of nowhere, he says in verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not, the Lord Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Messiah, are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is a strange text. David wrote this. Did David know what he was saying? Did he understand the ramifications of saying that Messiah was going to be a priest forever. Now, when David wrote this, the law had been around at least 500 years. And the law is sort of clear. How do you be a priest? You have to be related to Levi. A priest had to trace his lineage back to Aaron. Kings, not so much from the tribe of Levi, you know, they're from Judah normally, and if you remember Saul, the predecessor to David, he got in trouble for doing what? A lot of things, but one of them was acting like a priest. Not supposed to do that. So now you have in Psalm 110, David mingling the rules of priest and Cain. Interesting. Does he really know what he's saying? Some argue, no, he didn't. He just dictated this thing and wrote it down. There is dictation, you know, the Ten Commandments were dictated. But it is, it is poetry, and it's under divine inspiration. So did David know what he was saying? Well, think about this a little bit. In Deuteronomy 17, kings, if there ever were any, were given some very specific instructions. They were told, number one, to not multiply wives, and number two, not to multiply horses. But they were told to do one thing as they began their reign, And that is, make a personal copy of the law. They were supposed to copy it by hand for themselves so that then they had their own personal copy of the scriptures. For the rest of their lives, they were to read it and follow it. And so I would assume as the second king and a very literate king, he probably did that. And as he's doing that, he runs across Genesis 14. It's not that far in. We're going to come back to, Matthew, or to, to Psalm 110. But let's take a look back then at, Psalm, at Genesis 14, where Melchizedek comes in for the first time. So turn back, Genesis 14, let's see what's going on here. Genesis 14, verse 1. This, is a, this, this will be a heartwarming passage for you. At the time when, let's count them. Amraphel was king of Shinar, and Arioch king of Elisar, and Keterleomer king of Elam, and Tidal king of Goyim. How many kings? Four. These kings went to war against Bera king of Sodom, Birsha king of Gomorrah, Shinab king of Admah, Shem, Shemember, Sh- no, I don't know how to say that one, king of Z- it's that other place, and, and the king of Bela, that is Zoar. Okay, there's five there. All of these, all, all these latter kings, these five, joined in for, joined forces in the valley of Sidim, that is in the, the Dead Sea Valley, down in the Jordan Valley. For 12 years they had been subject to Keterleomer, these four kings and his coalition, but in the 13th year they rebelled. So you have these four kings, they are aligned, aligned against five kings on the other side, these four conquer them, they're serving these four kings. Don't think Queen Elizabeth II that's not the kind of king we're thinking about here. They're really like mayors, city leaders. They're, these are city-states. And so, you know, they, they get these four mayors or kings together under Laomer. They've come from the north. They've conquered things. They're ruling They're, they're making people pay their, their taxes to them and all of that. So you have four, four kings against five. And at this point then in Genesis 14, there's a nasty battle that involves tar pits and whatever, and so the four under Keter Laomer lose, okay, I'm sorry, they win, now you're really confused, but these four win, okay, so they've they've subjected these, these other five, and when they do that, they steal the kids, they kill the husbands, they, you know, steal the cattle, all that, and then they head up back up north, Genesis 14, verse 13, a man who had escaped came and reported this to Abram, the Hebrew, Abraham eventually. Now, Abram was living near the great trees of Mamre, the Amorite, a brother of Eshcol and Aner, who, all of whom were allied with Abram. When Abram heard that his relative, Lot, had been taken captive, he called out the 318 trained men born in his household and went in, his, in pursuit as far as Dan." Now. You're not thinking trained army here. You're thinking about some, some men who can run and walk and run some more and walk some more and run some more and, you know, they could do stuff with fighting. And so they come up to the north. They're chasing these five, these four kings. They have encountered them, the text says, at night. And in verse 15, Abraham divides his men and he attacks. And they get the upper hand. They chase them from Dan, which is up north uh, to way up north beyond Damascus. Now, this isn't warfare with trenches and stuff and you just defeat the enemy. What happens is you fight and if you're losing, what do you do? You retreat, you run. And so that's what they did. But the more you, you if you keep pressing them, what do they have to do? They got to start leaving the women and the, and the, and the booty behind. You can't, you can't save your life and your stuff. So that's what they do. They keep chasing them, and they keep leaving the stuff, and Abraham, you know, they, his troops pick up this stuff along the way until eventually, you know, they, they can stop because there's nothing left. And so this big fight happens, and then Abraham's troops have picked up all the stuff, and then in verse 17, it says this. After Abram returned from defeating Keterleomer and the kings allied with him, The king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shavah, that is, the king's valley. Probably the Kidron Valley, somewhere in the Kidron Valley. It's a typical transaction. Verse 21, skip down. The king of Sodom said to Abram, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. You can keep my stuff they stole, just give me my people. Typical transaction. Verse 22, but Abram said to the king of Sodom, With raised hand, I have sworn an oath to the Lord, God most high, creator of heaven and earth, that I will accept nothing belonging to you, not even a thread or the strap of a sandal, so that you will never be able to say, I made Abram rich. I'm not going to take any of your stuff. Give it all back. But you noticed we skipped a few verses. In the middle of this transaction who pops up? Just kind of like he popped up in Psalm 110, Melchizedek. Hmm, verse 18, "'Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High, and he blessed Abram, saying, "'Blessed be Abram by God Most High, creator of heaven and earth.'" He's a God-fearer, and praise be to God Most High, who delivered your enemies into your hand. "'Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything.'" Okay, in the context of Genesis 14, Melchizedek is placed in stark contrast to Sodom, the king. Sodom and Abram, there's a coldness in that relationship. Sodom represents the part of wickedness that's down in the valley, but Melchizedek, he's of another sort of person. He's righteous, he's a God-fearer. And Abram's troops are famished, and he notices that. They've been on this long trek, so what does he do? He opens up, let's give them food, let's give them wine, let's feed them. They're hungry, fresh supplies. And Abraham, in response to that, does what? He gives him a tenth of everything he's got. This is weird. It breaks up the whole flow of thought. He's in this conversation with Sodom, and they're going to deal with this. And then, boom, here's this Melchizedek person. What's going on? What do we really know about Melchizedek from the Genesis account? Not very much. I mean, how many people show up in the Old Testament without being connected genealogically to somebody else? Have you read the Old Testament? Have you read Genesis? Have you read 1 Chronicles or 2 Chronicles with all the lists? So-and-so begat so-and-so and and lived so many years, and then he died. That's Genesis. And -and so-and-so lived so many years and begat so-and-so. Or you flip it the other way. He was the son of this who was the son of this who was the son of that. But this dude, Melchizedek, shows up, and then he's gone. No mommy, no daddy, no genealogy. There are a few others in Genesis, but they're not very important. And so, eh, no big deal. But this guy's different. Why is he different? Because Abraham paid him a tenth of everything he had. He pays him a tithe, and then Abraham receives from him a blessing. Abraham's, he's a vast landowner. He's rich. He's an impressive figure. And yet what? Melchizedek blesses him, the father of the nation of Israel. Abraham, the great patriarch, recognized Melchizedek as what? As a priest. So what's the point of all of this? Well, some would say Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. He's a figure of Jesus who showed up, you know, 2,000 years before he was born. But but I'm not going to go there. You can go there. We'll still love you. But I don't think I'm going to go there. Why? Well, one reason is because of what it says about him in Psalm 110. David doesn't just say, you're a priest forever. You are Melchizedek, to about the Messiah. He doesn't say that. He says, you will be in the order of Melchizedek. If he had just said, you know, you will be Melchizedek, that will solve a lot of problems for us interpreters. But Melchizedek provides some sort of model or pattern here. And the clue is in the pattern, to that pattern, is found in Psalm 110. Messiah, David says, is priest-king. The whole priest-king motif is not very common in David's day. It's, you know, I think David's wrestling with this. He's, in his mind, he says, I, I can't be a priest and a king The law doesn't really support that. My predecessor got in trouble to doing that, but David does see, I think, a progress of revelation. David says, you know, God is unfolding truth step by step by step, and it's okay to be a king and a priest In Abram's day, it's not okay to be a king and a priest in my day, so what's the difference? The difference is the law. The law has been instituted. And I think that David understands that as he's having these devotions, reading his personal copy of the law, and he runs into this enigmatic figure, Melchizedek, superior to Abraham, who is a priest-king, and he's like, oh, that's what's going on. And then he writes... God most high, creator of heaven and earth, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. The king at God's right hand is also a priest. You are a priest forever. You're going to function in this role of a mediator as the Messiah in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Leviticus, which brings you back to Saul who got, you know, the throne removed for trying to do that, but then that's all that's said in Genesis. That's all that's said in, in Psalm one ten, and it goes silent. Nothing for a thousand years. It just hangs there. Now you can read all kinds of commentaries. It really didn't just hang there. They had all kinds of ideas over the and speculation over the years, but nothing comes close to the exp- explanation that we find in Hebrews five six and seven, where the writer opens up in Hebrews seven with what Genesis says. If you have your Bibles, turn to Hebrews 7. It's one verse in five, a couple verses in six, the most of the discussions in seven. That's what we're going to look at this morning. Verse, Hebrews 7, verse 1. This Melchizedek was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We know this. We've, we just read that in Genesis. So now you begin to get some exegesis, some explanation of the text. Verse 2. First, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. I'm writing to people that might not know their Hebrew too well, so it means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Don't miss the Hebrew meaning. It's important to understand this figure. Then he says, then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Most likely king of Jerusalem. Another explanation of the Hebrew. Verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, He remains a priest forever. As far as the text is concerned, there's no beginning, there's no end, there's no genealogy, which is a huge point. The author is saying there is a theological significance in what has been left out of the Old Testament record of Melchizedek. Arguments from silence can be very weak, but an argument for silence from silence is very strong if you're expecting noise. Have you ever, are you familiar with Sherlock Holmes' Silver Blaze? Sherlock figures out the crime because the dog did not bark at night. This dog always barks at night when there's a stranger around, day or night. He barks if there's a stranger. But the night of the crime, the dog did not bark. Therefore, it wasn't a stranger. The silence is significant because the dog always barks around strangers. So it had to be someone known to the dog. So the fact that there is no genealogy, no mention of a father or mother, especially in the book of Genesis, which is full of that, is significant. Because everybody who is significant in the book of Genesis always has a genealogy, and all of a sudden now, you don't? And this person is even more important than Abraham? And he's just slipped into the text like, uh, so you draw some conclusions. This dude just shows up and then disappears. So what? The writer of the Hebrews says, therefore, he resembles the Son of God. He remains a priest. As far as we know, he's still doing his priestly stuff. Then the writer keeps going. Verse 4, just think of how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. Now, the law, which is the law of Moses, which came about 500 years after this account in Genesis 4, the law requires the descendants of Levi... Who become priests to collect a tenth from, pe- from the people, that is, from their kindred, even though their kindred are descended from Abraham. So the Levites, the ultimate grandchildren, great way right down the line of Abraham, were authorized to collect tithes, collect, that, you, you give, that's what they did. They don't give tithes, they collect them. Verse 5, now the law requires the descendants of Levi who, became, who become priests to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their fellow Israelites, even though they also are descended from Abraham. This man, however, did not trace his descent from Levi, yet he collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. And without doubt, the lesser is blessed by the greater. The greater blesses. Not, not the other way around. What's going on? I think it's here to teach us something very important. Hebrews wants to teach us how important Melchizedek is. And so you've got this straightforward explanation in the text in Hebrews. So now you come to the point of it all, which is huge. If the ultimate priesthood was a Levitical priesthood, and the law of Moses was final, then why on earth, in in, Psalm 110, centuries after the law was given, does David say there is a priesthood from a different order, from the order of Melchizedek? Because what you are saying when you say that is this. The Levitical priesthood somehow is not good enough it's a bit defective. And once you start announcing there's going to be a priest after the order of Melchizedek, you can't just rip the priesthood out of the law. It's a a unit. What are you going to do if you don't have a priesthood? So, a thousand years before Jesus comes, David's psalm is already saying, in effect, we have to have something more than a Levitical priesthood. And it's not enough. We need something more than the law, too. And David is saying we need something that outstrips the the Levitical system. Watch how the argument goes in verse 11. If perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, why was there still a need for another priest to come? One in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. For when the priesthood is changed, the law's got to change. Did you catch that? When the priesthood is changed, the law is changed. He's saying if you pull out the priesthood, you've changed the whole covenant of law. It doesn't work. The whole thing becomes obsolete. And as soon as you start announcing the uselessness of the Levitical priesthood, you're announcing the uselessness of the entire covenant, the entire law. That's the argument that's picked up in Hebrews 8. We're not going to go there. You can relax. It's beyond our scope. But that's the argument he makes. So you have in David's time a progress of revelation in this vague figure of Melchizedek. You go from priest-king to the law, which basically says, eh, that can't happen, to David saying, yeah, we are going to have a Messiah who is priest king. And then you arrive in Hebrews which says we do have a priest king, not from the tribe of Levi. That would be illegitimate. He is from the tribe of Judah. And a new covenant is already announced in principle a thousand years before Jesus arrives verse 13 He of whom these things are said belong to a different tribe and no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar for it is clear that our Lord descended from Judah and in regard to that tribe Moses said nothing about priests and we and what we have said is even more clear if another priest like Melchizedek appears one who has become priest not on the basis of a regulation to his ancestry but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Any Levite had to have the right mom and dad to serve in his role. They had to trace their lineage back to Zadok, or before that, all the way to Aaron. And you couldn't be a high priest without the right genetics. There was a regulation as to ancestry, but there is no ancestry in the figure of Melchizedek. What's the ancestry of Jesus? According to the flesh, Joseph? uh, According to the flesh, yeah, I suppose. He's the son of Mary, but ultimately his ancestry is grounded in what? In the God of eternity, which is where we'll be next week. Verse 17, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And we're back to where we started in Psalm 110. So what do we learn from Melchizedek? Why all this stuff? You're like, uh, Because it's another gateway that we can learn to understand Christ. I mean, you want to endure hardship and even persecution? Well, this is your savior. You want God's blessing on your family and in your personal life? You want to resist temptation? You want to live a righteous life? then you need a clearer vision of who Jesus is. You need to seek God for a clearer vision of the glories of Christ. And so I have two observations as to why Melchizedek the invisible is so important. And these observations center around him being a model in two ways for us. I mean, we've spent a ton of time this morning on the mechanics of Melchizedek, how it works, how the Bible handles him. And I'm sorry for that in some senses of the word. So hang with me now, we get to the theological payoff. Number one, Jesus is king. Psalm 110, if it says nothing else, it says that. We have a savior who is not only a king, but he is the promised king who will rule over our lives. Did you hear that in Psalm 110? The Lord says to my Lord, sit at your right hand until I make your enemies a footstool at your feet. He's a king, a conquering king. Verse 2, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like like dew from the morning's womb. Jesus is the King who will confront the enemies of God. Jesus is the King who's going to bring the entire world into a place of consummation and end it all. Jesus is the King. He is the conqueror. And we are to bow in submission to His kingship. You see, what you believe about Jesus Christ makes a huge difference in your life. We even learn in the book of Hebrews that people can be a, in danger of what? Falling away. Because they do not grasp how great Melchizedek is. And if you don't see that, you, then you do not grasp how much greater the one whom Melchizedek prefigured is. And that's what this is all about. The most important question in the world is the same question that Jesus asked his disciples. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You get the answer wrong? Your eternal destiny hinges upon it. The way you live hinges upon it. If you correctly say from your heart by faith, Jesus is the Son of God who gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice for my sins. I believe that he will keep his promises. Then you have eternal life. If you diminish Jesus to a lesser role, eh, good teacher, good moral example, then you do not understand Jesus as king. And any teaching that diminishes the supremacy of Jesus Christ is fault. We learn from Melchizedek, from Psalm one ten. Jesus is king. We also learn from Melchizedek that Jesus is also priest. Jesus is priest. You see, if Jesus is just a king, <laughs> we better just live in terror. That's it. But he is also our priest. He is the perfect mediator between God and human beings because He is God and because He is a human being. And He takes up every function and every purpose in the Old Testament that a priest would do, but He outstrips them all because He never sinned. And the author goes on to talk about that in Hebrews That's why Jesus is even a better high priest than any who came before Him, because they all had to sacrifice for their own sin first. And then there's the issue, the whole issue of the sacrifices that they offered. I mean, does the blood of a bull and a goat actually have some sort of intrinsic value to cover my sin? Does that really make any sense? The bull isn't saying, you know, cut my throat. Go ahead, slit it, I'm dying for you. In that sense, it's morally useless. What does it mean to take the blood of a goat and substitute it for the blood of a human being? It doesn't make any sense. But it is pointing us to something else. It is pointing to the one. It is pointing us to the Lamb of God. Wonderful, beautiful Savior, a precious Redeemer, a friend. Who would have thought that a lamb could, could ransom the souls of men? What a lamb that is. He is the priest who also turns out to be the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the place where human beings meet a holy God he's a temple, he's a priest, he's the lamb, his body is the veil. You know, all of these strands come together from the Old Testament in the person of Jesus Christ. And so we come to these New Testament ideas and concepts and texts, and and our eyes see how the Old Testament becomes a pattern for what we have in Christ. Because in God's perfect wisdom, he anticipated it all. And we come before the fulfillment, and we bow in worship. Because God knows I need a king to subdue my heart. And I need a king to bring this world into climax. But I also need a priest to offer himself as the supreme sacrifice. Or I am undone. Or I have no hope. A perfect priest. One of our kind. One like us a human being who is, nevertheless, one with God, ultimately without father and mother, in the most ultimate sense, the everlasting of days. This is the Jesus whose gospel we proclaim before the throne of God above. I have a strong and perfect plea a great high priest whose name is love whoever lives and pleads for me let's pray father we don't want to make the reading of the old testament just a mental cerebral exercise but we want to understand what your word says that we might be able to draw near with confidence to Christ the lord our beloved king and our priest, made for us everything we need. Let us find confidence in him today. Let us open our eyes that we may see and in seeing believe that you will keep your promises that we might obey. In Jesus' name, amen.